Here in this final lecture of week three and also the third in the series of lobbying in the judicial branch, I'm going to look at what it means to lobby in the courts. Um, and I put that in quotes and I do the air quotes thing here, uh, not because I mean this snidely, but mostly to point out that this application of the term is not how people would normally talk about or would normally see uh, um, working through the courts to get a particular outcome. But it does match the definition of lobbying that I've been using in this course, which is seeking a favorable policy outcome from uh, public officials. Uh, arguing for a side and a policy outcome in a court case with policy implications, that's what's going on here. That's what this form of lobbying looks like. Um, and as I indicated <coughs> in the previous lecture, there is a um, sense in which the domain for lobbying in the judicial branch is smaller than the domain for lobbying in the executive or legislative branches because it has to be a question that surrounds uh, a uh, case where judicial review can be applied. And that isn't every policy victory can't be won through the courts. The primary place to win policy victories is the legislature. Um, it's long and slow and very difficult to get a complete victory uh, and it can require a sort of ongoing uh, type of uh, influence, particularly with you know, cycle after cycle of electoral support. Um, you can get certain kinds of policy victories uh, in the executive branch with uh, a favorable administration and with certain kinds of activities. Uh, and that's a smaller area because if to get a policy victory in the executive branch, there has to be room within what the legislative branch has created. There has to be an opportunity for the executive to take action, to implement uh, the policy that's been decided by the legislature in a certain way, to uh, um, uh, use the discretion that's available in the regulatory power or in the gaps in the authorizing statute. And Obviously, pushing for the executive branch, whether it's the president through an executive order or whether it's political appointees in various kinds of policy-making positions or uh, uh, political appointees who are in the independent agencies, uh, that's going to be, that, that's obviously seen as lobbying because you're, you're going directly to public officials and you're asking them to side with you because they have discretion. Um, judicial, the judicial branch is often seen as a place not where judges have discretion, or at least that's kind of the supposed to be the truth about the judicial branch, is that uh, judges are, are just referees or umpires calling strikes and balls, not people who are making decisions. Even if it's the case that judges are just calling strikes and balls within the uh, sort of general outline of, of the constitutional language, uh, they still do have policy-making power. The, there are policy implications for the decisions that are made. Now, because they are making the decisions in a different environment and with different kinds of powers, the way that those public officials are asked to make a determination to get a policy victory for a, an interest group or a coalition of interest groups is going to look quite different. Uh, now, I want to uh, compare lobbying quickly. I've already gotten a little bit of it, uh, but just to be very explicit about the comparison, when you go to a legislator, you're asking them to pass a piece of legislation uh, or add an amendment, or you're asking them to block uh, a piece of legislation or to remove an amendment. You're asking them specifically directly for uh, inclusion or exclusion of something in a bill, or you're asking them to uh, block that bill. You're going on offense to ask for a new thing, or you're going on defense to preserve the status quo. Uh, when you're doing that, when you lobby those elected officials, the primary way that you talk to them is by saying, this is going to benefit your 
re-election prospects. Uh, so the, the discourse of lobbying in the legislative branch is a discourse of re-election. Uh, and it's not as though it's just a matter of like, okay, if you support our thing, then we'll give you lots of money to help you get reelected. That's one mechanism. The constituent connection is another big mechanism. Like do this thing uh, for uh, us, or for, we're asking you to do this thing for us, but really you're doing it for your constituents and your constituents will repay you by voting for you. And we know that we can provide you with messaging and information uh, and uh, statistics that show that this is actually going to serve your constituents and help your re-election. So uh, it's not as though lobbyists just go to uh, legislators and say, you know, do our bidding or we're going to cut off our funds for your re-election campaign. There's some of that, but there's, there's a, a broader discourse, but the discourse is all aimed at enhancing re-election prospects. When you are lobbying executive appointees, uh, or when you're lobbying uh, you know, a president or a governor, uh, you are basically, in that case, you are, instead of talking to them about their re-election prospects, because appointees don't have re-election prospects, and second-term presidents don't have re-election prospects, um, <clears throat> and many governors are term-limited to two terms, so they don't have re-election prospects, you don't speak to executive officials the same way. Uh, you're asking for a policy outcome. Again, either offensive, you want something new uh, to change, you want a regulation added, you want a regulation that's in place removed, or you want uh, to play defense, you want to block a change that's being considered. Uh, you speak to those elected officials or those appointees in the language of their political perspective, their partisan uh, leaning. So if it's a Republican administration, you speak to them in terms of the Republican view on the world. If it's a Democratic administration, you speak to them in terms of the Democratic approach to the world. And in both cases, the Democratic and the Republican approach and view in the world brings with it a certain view on what best serves the common good. And there are, you know, the big differences between the Democratic and the Republican version of what serves the common good in terms of what kinds of orientation. Roughly, the Republican view is that less government, more free market, and the Democratic view is more government, less free market. Uh, that's a very blunt way of putting it, and it doesn't, that doesn't fit every specific single thing that Republicans and Democrats uh, want in the world. But that's a good, broad, uh, accu relatively accurate way of talking about the difference. Both of those are aimed at the common good. Republicans say the common good is served by having minimal government uh, um, intervention not no government intervention. And so when you're speaking to a Republican appointed official uh, and you are asking for a government intervention, you're not necessarily just doomed because you're asking for something that goes against the broad Republican view on uh, government action and <coughs> the private market. Um, but you do have to speak in terms of the broader sense of like, okay, this government intervention will aid the market mechanisms to produce better outcomes, and that serves the common good. Uh, so you, you speak within the essentially the uh, partisan leaning of the administration, seeking to convince them that the thing you're asking for uh, is in the common good, or is in the specific good of the people who are uh, going to be affected by it, which is a, a localized version of the common good. Um, and also, who counts most in the common is going to be a relevant factor. So um, the uh, Democratic Party relies for its electoral base on a certain group of voters. And so when you speak to Democratic appointees, even though they're not going to go to those voters asking to get reelected, they're going to see 
workers and they're going to see poorer people and they're going to see uh, um, people of color and immigrants, they're going to see them as an important component of the common. So their good needs to be taken into account. When you talk to a Republican administration, they see the business community as driving the good of the rest of the, of, of the country. So you're going to speak to Republican appointees typically in terms of what is good for the business community, either broadly or at this particular business community, the pharmaceutical industry, the telecommunications industry, whatever it happens to be. Um, so uh, the way that you go about lobbying the executive branch is going to vary depending on the administrative lead. Uh, there's a way to talk to judges that will get you much more likely to have the outcome that you desire. Um, and you're going to have to talk to them, and I'm going to deal with this by answering this question, what factors determine success in this arena. You're going to have to talk to them within the, within the discourse of legal reasoning. Legislators listen to re-election reasoning. Executive appointees listen to common good reasoning through the lens of their partisan uh, uh, leaning. And judges listen to legal reasoning. Legal reasoning has several components to it. I've already indicated in the last lecture what those components are, and I want to move through this relatively expeditiously uh, to make the points that I gestured at last time uh, deeper. The one of the first things you have to talk about, and has to be true if you're going to lobby in the courts, in other words, if you're going to use the courts to try to achieve policy victories, is the question that you want answered has to be a justiceable one. Now this is a weird term, it's awkward to say, justiceability doesn't flow off the tongue very easily, but it's super important because what it means is, it's a question, it's a policy approach that is a question that a court can answer, not a political branch. And not every question can be answered by a court. Many questions are not justiceable at all. Um, for example, if you're pushing for uh, greater funding for the arts in the educational system of your city, uh, that's something that you, that you as, a, as a person or the interest groups that you're, that you're active in, that's a, that's a, that's a positive, po that would be a policy win for them. Um, that's not really a justiceable question. Funding for the arts, uh, whether a government does or doesn't do it, typically doesn't violate some kind of constitutional uh, clause or uh, right or responsibility. It typically isn't a uh, thing that you can say, oh, this is, a, this is a violation of the city charter, of the state constitution, of the US constitution, or of an applicable statute. You have to lobby for uh, greater arts funding through the city council, the school board, the state legislature, or sometimes through uh, the executive appointees who are deciding how to distribute budget funding. That's how you get that. That's not a justiceable question. Uh, there are a lot of questions that are not justiceable. Um, there are actually quite a very few questions that are even in the gray area of justiceability, uh, and they're, they're pretty few and far between, and I won't even talk about them mostly, but one of the things about the judicial branch as an avenue of lobbying is uh, it is a more narrow lane. So the first thing you have to be able to do to even talk to a judge or a justice about getting a policy win in a case is to prevent them from throwing out the case as not justiceable or to prevent them from looking at the case only as a case and not as something with policy implications. And I talked about this two lectures ago that there are many cases that, uh, even when they go to appeals, are really mostly about how that case was handled at the, at the bottom level of the, th uh, the three-tiered hierarchy, not 
whether or not there are actual interpretations of the law or the Constitution that would, that would give the court the ability to do something that has policy implications. To, to use an act of judicial review, not just to say, okay, that court screwed up and your, tr your, your criminal trial was, uh, is null and void, um, that's a minor act of judicial review with no policy implications. So there has to be the opportunity for policy implications. Now, what this means is that from the point of view of interest groups, there are numerous interest groups that don't ever lobby through the courts or very rarely lobby through the courts because the kinds of policies they're looking for are justiciable policies. Uh, and that restricts their ability to pursue their policy goals through the full range of uh, uh, government action through, through, through the full range of, of lobbying activities. But it also simplifies the decision about resources. You don't have to say, well, maybe we ought to have a lot of good constitutional lawyers on staff, or we ought to uh, be able to dedicate uh, our resources to going and finding test cases and pushing for victories. Uh, it's, just, it's just not part of the mission of that, uh, of that particular group. And others are, other interest groups are really the main avenue that they work through are the courts. I mean, if you're, if you're interested in fairness in the criminal justice system, one of the best ways to advance those interests is through court rulings because the courts control, not entirely, because uh, statutes set criminal precedent, but the courts control how criminal, uh, criminal procedure uh, operates and they can add rules like the exclusionary rule. So if you're looking to, to give, uh, to make sure that criminal defendants have a robust set of, of criminal defense rights, then the court is absolutely the place to work through. Working through the legislature also is good too because the legislature can add uh, those rules as statutes, but the courts are gonna add, gonna be an easier win and they're also gonna be a more permanent win. Uh, so once you have a justiceable uh, policy that can, and there's a case, that there's a, justiceability also brings with it the notion of judicial passivity. J uh, judges can't create policy outcomes unless there's actually a case before them about a specific uh, law or a specific phrase in the Constitution or a specific executive act like an executive order or a regulatory board decision. So uh, justiceability is about, is the question justiceable and also is there a case or controversy that's called the case or controversy requirement. Once that's, once that's in place, once justiceability is, is on your side, doesn't guarantee you a win. It gives you the chance to begin lobbying. Precedent and interpretation, as I talked about uh, in the previous lecture, are the ways in which judges and justices argue for their own outcomes. They say, okay, in United States versus Miller, Miller wins. Um, six of the nine justices say Miller wins. One of those six justices gets picked to uh, write the opinion of the court. And uh, that the ruling starts off by saying Miller wins, and here's the reason why. And the reasoning all goes through precedent and interpretation. Um, the thing about precedent that you're fighting about, the two different sides in our adversarial system are arguing uh, not whether or not to use precedent. They're arguing about two elements of precedent. One, which set of precedents, which set of previous court rulings are relevant to this particular situation? And two, how should those previous precedents be applied in this situation, which is similar to, but not exactly the same. Very few court cases, very few important controversies are exactly the same as a previously ruled case. Um, it happens sometimes, 
uh, and it's, but it's very rare that the Supreme Court will take a case that has been decided exactly the same, or exactly the same kind of case as in the past. And one of the few reasons why the courts will do that is to actually overturn the precedent. Um, so, for example, in uh, Bowers versus Hardwick, the Supreme Court ruled that Georgia's sodomy, anti-sodomy law was constitutional um, in, uh, I forget the name of the case, I should be prepared with this, um, oh shoot, it's uh, Texas versus, ah, not Chambers, Johnson possibly, um, I think it's a Texas case where it was, it was not exactly the same law, obviously the Georgia anti-sodomy law was the first case, but Texas's anti-sodomy law was virtually identical. And in that case, precedent was on the side of Texas, but the Supreme Court basically just overturned Bowers versus Harbick and said that that was wrongly decided. That happens, but it happens very, very rarely. The reason why that happened is a combination of interpretation and a favorable majority, and I'll talk about that uh, in, in, in just a second. Um, but precedents are, uh, the case at hand is never exactly the same. So one, both sides are saying, no, no, our set of precedents, which will lead you to rule on our side, are the relevant ones. And here's how you should apply them in this similar but different state. And those sides are saying, no, 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 our precedents, I'm not pulling them in, but I should be pushing them out. Our precedents are the ones you should be looking at, and you should be applying them in this particular way. Uh, so the discourse of this form of lobbying is really centered around finding cases that can be put into the minds of the judges and justices as the ones that are relevant and controlling. What precedent is controlling is one of the main arguments that's made. And often when uh, lawyers come up in front of uh, the Supreme Court to argue and they're saying why their side should win, justices will interrupt them and say, so you're saying we should interpret this particular case, U.S. versus Miller 1994, uh, in this particular way, why, right? And so the lawyers will have to be prepared to defend their choice of that precedent as well as their application of that precedent. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, essentially what it is, is, is it's really an intellectual joust. Uh, when you're lobbying legislators, you're not engaged in an intellectual joust. You're engaged in a demonstration that this particular action that you're wanting from them will help them get reelected more easily in the future. Uh, when you're lobbying an executive official, you're not engaged in a joust, you're, you're engaged in a demonstration, not that they'll get reelected, but that they'll be serving the public good, the common good, as they see it. Uh, when you are lobbying judges and justices, you're basically engaged in an intellectual joust. It's really a debate. It's kind of a pure form of discourse where it's ideas clash against other ideas. Now, the other big set of ideas are interpretations. Lawyers will say, here's the relevant phrase in the statute. Here's the relevant uh, clause in the Constitution. We think you ought to interpret it this way because this interpretation of it gives our side a victory. Uh, I mentioned uh, Miranda versus Arizona, um, or Arizona versus Miranda, no, not Miranda, um, Gideon versus Wainwright in a previous lecture as an important criminal procedure uh, um, case. This was one where in uh, Gideon versus Wainwright, essentially the Sixth Amendment requirement that uh, criminal defendants have the right to uh, counsel, to assist in their defense, there are two different ways of interpreting the right to counsel. One way is to say that the government can't stop you from having a lawyer. They can't say, no, no, you, you have to go into court with no lawyer. Um, the, the other way is to say that the government can't stop you from getting a lawyer, and if you can't get one for yourself, then the government will give you a lawyer. Uh, 
those two different interpretations of that phrase both match the words. Um, and you can reasonably interpret the phrase, the right to counsel, to assist in their defense, in either one of those ways. Uh, one of the things about our, the interpretive argument is uh, saying that in the context of other phrases and the intention, the underlying spirit and, and values of the Constitution, that uh, this interpretation versus that interpretation is the more sensible one. So in Gideon versus Wainwright, the, uh, those that were arguing essentially that the right to uh, counsel was a positive right to actually have a lawyer, not just to, just to have the right to get one if you can, but to actually have a lawyer with you, the, uh, the lawyers argued, and the justices who, the justices who wrote the uh, majority opinion accepted and, 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 and reframed this argument, they argued that the reason to have criminal defense rights in the Constitution in the first place is to make sure that people who are innocent don't go to jail as much as possible. And that many of these rights are geared towards giving extra power to defendants so that they're, they're much more likely to be equally matched with the uh, government's power. And so essentially, we have to provide resources to defendants to make sure that this joust of the criminal trial is relatively fair, even though it's totally unfair since the power of the government is always going to overawe the power of the individual, uh, even if the individual is, is, is particularly rich. Um, so th that argument, and then basically what that was, was that was interpreting the right to counsel, which could go either way, right? The right to counsel. Is that a right to actually have a lawyer or the right to just have the option to have a lawyer? Uh, was brought, argued in a broader context of what was the purpose of the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments in their entirety. The purpose was to provide a robust set of powers for criminal defendants to make sure that as, it, it, it's rare that innocent people go to jail because trials are an equal joust between the two sides. Uh, and that interpretation was uh, accepted Whereas the other side was saying, no, we, the right to counsel is just that we can't, the government can't stop you from having a lawyer. But we don't, why would we have a positive responsibility to provide you with a lawyer, right? That's asking too much. Uh, the, uh, this is a negative right. This is a right to have an option, not the right to have a resource. That argument was not accepted by the court. Now, how are you going to get the court to buy your set of precedents and to accept your interpretation? This is where the favorable majority, and I put favorable in quotes in this case because um, it's a favorable majority is a very questionable and open-ended concept. It's not a slam dunk when you know who's on the Supreme Court, how they're going to rule. You don't know how five of the justices are going to view the precedent and interpretive arguments of the lawyers on both sides. Um, Many cases are predictable-ish. Uh, some cases are not predictable. There are frequently surprises. Um, and even when the ruling goes as it was expected, it was more like saying, well, the team that was favored to win the Super Bowl usually wins the Super Bowl. But they don't all the time, right? Uh, sometimes the underdog wins the Super Bowl. When the Giants beat the Patriots and, and stop them from having a, 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 a undefeated season and the Giants were a wild card team, a super underdog, like that just happens, right? It was a surprise. The Patriots were expected to win that one for sure, but it happens. Supreme Court cases are maybe, you know, not, that's maybe not the exact best analogy, but a favorable majority is not by any means certain. 
right? Just because we have more Republican appointed justices on the Supreme Court doesn't mean that conservative uh, um, uh, causes are gonna win all of their rulings. In fact, it's happened quite a bit that they haven't. Um, now, what makes for a favorable majority though? Uh, the, this is where the judicial realm is quite different than the political realm. Uh, if you are a judicial conservative or a judicial liberal, that means a different thing than a political conservative or a political liberal. Uh, they align quite a bit. If you're, if you're a judicial liberal, you will agree in terms of policy with a lot of political liberal policies, but not all of them. Nor will you always, even if you agree with them as a human person, but as a judge, you might just say, well, you know, I, I definitely think, let's for example, I definitely think that uh, people should have uh, robust healthcare provided to them if I'm a political liberal. But if I'm a judicial liberal, I might not see the Constitution as implying a strong right to healthcare resources from the government. Because uh, that, I might just be like, well, that would be good if the legislature did it, but as a judge, I can't do it. One of the things about a judicial philosophy is that we can categorize people as judicial liberals and judicial conservatives and judicial moderates, but it kind of doesn't really fit. And one of the reasons it doesn't fit is because part of what a judicial uh, philosophy entails is justiceability. Um, part of what a judicial philosophy entails is how deeply into the text of the Constitution you should dig, how much interpretation and implication you should engage in, how much it's reasonable to depart from old precedents that represent a very bygone perspective, like a 50 or 60 year old precedent might seem to you still controlling or like, well, it's a little less, less uh, controlling because times are different. We can, we can relook at that. Judicial philosophy is squirrelier than political philosophies. And uh, they are usually also deeply held, but there's no easy way to say, we've got five conservatives in the court and four liberals on the court. Uh, on certain issues, you can say, yeah, we've got five clear conservatives on this particular issue of presidential power and four liberals on this issue of presidential power. The conservatives are more apt to take an expansive view of presidential power and the liberals are more apt to take a narrow view of presidential power. And so if we get a presidential power case, it's likely to get a five to four win for the conservatives. And that is true for any number of cases, but it's definitely not true for a lot because uh, there's all, there are also multiple versions of the conservative view and the liberal view on every issue. Racial equity, uh, gender, uh, gender fairness, uh, presidential power, um, the meaning of the Fourth Amendment, uh, the robustness of criminal defense rights. Just because you're a judicial liberal doesn't mean that you're uh, all for a very vigorous set of criminal defendants' rights. Uh, there are definitely judicial liberals who are very much for making sure that criminal defendants have a very robust set of rights. And then there are other judicial liberals who are maybe more moderate on that particular issue because their reading of the Constitution uh, is, uh, you know, leans in that direction, but doesn't move really far over in that direction. What is a favorable majority? A favorable majority is just one where the uh, judicial philosophies of a majority of the, of the justices are susceptible to your type of argument. And what you as a, as a lobbyist in the judicial branch have to do as a, as a constitutional lawyer is you have to try to figure out how to frame your precedent and your interpretation of the constitution of the statute in a way that will speak to the judicial philosophy of a majority 
of the justices. And in, in a lot of ways, what's good is that when the justices ask questions, it gives the lawyers a chance to tailor their answer to that particular justices. Like usually the question will express some feature of that justices uh, uh, judicial philosophy. Another reason why there's a difference between judicial and political philosophies is that political uh, philosophies tend to alter over time. So what the conservative view on an issue is today might be very different than the conservative view was 30 years ago. Um, and so political conservatives have adapted, right? Um, the, uh, you know, one, one example is that it's becoming more conservative to be a protectionist in terms of international trade, whereas 10 and definitely 20 years ago, it was a conservative view to, uh, to want free trade and open global markets. Uh, so pol politics changes. Judicial philosophies, typically once a judge as a young lawyer and then as a, you know, uh, a, a young judge has a philosophy embedded, typically, however much times change, because these judges are immunized from uh, public opinion because they don't have to get reelected and because they see their job as applying precedent and doing so in a legal way, not in a political way, Typically, they're not going to transform their judicial philosophy as the times change. Uh, the idea of the legal system is that it's a stable set of expectations over decades and decades. And so the acculturation of lawyers and judges that goes on in law school and continues through the, uh, the practice of law uh, really essentially pulls hard against developing and transforming. Uh, politicians respond to changes in the times, changes in current events, changes in public opinion, much more so than judges do. Uh, one of the things about getting a favorable majority is that this is part of, and I mentioned this before, this is part of, uh, of electoral politics in the executive uh, domain. You want to get, you're better off, right? If, if you have conservative views and conservative policies that you want to uh, enacted through the uh, Supreme Court, you're all you're going to be better off with more Republican appointed justices than with Democratic appointed justices. So that's a that's that's a, an easy thing to do to know that you would rather have Donald Trump appointed people to the Supreme Court than uh, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden if you are looking for conservative victories. So you're going to of course push for those uh, partisan wins, but you're not always going to get exactly the outcomes on a case by case basis. That you want, and in fact, um, the uh, appointees uh, to the Supreme Court that Donald Trump has made were pleasing to conservative groups, but the uh, rulings that they participated in have not always been pleasing to those conservative groups that were happy to have them on the court. And that's how it goes. Uh, judicial uh, lobbying is also more unpredictable than lobbying the legislature and lobbying the executive. Lobbying the legislature is a long-term, slow slog of creating and maintaining these relationships of electoral dependency, essentially. Uh, uh, lobbying the executive is usually the quickest, fastest way, though the, 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 the victories in the executive branch are uh, more transitory because they can be just overturned by the next administration. Uh, the victories in the judicial branch are uh, more unpredictable. However, they are also more permanent, right? Nothing's permanent, but they are more long-lasting. They're closer to permanent. Roe versus Wade, which has been, you know, people have been worried about it now for at least two decades, is way more persistent as a precedent than it would be as a law. It would have already been repealed uh, as just an act of Congress. 
uh, protecting a woman's right to an abortion. Uh, whereas it's, it's change in the judicial branch happens more slowly because precedents tend to be more permanent and more enduring. That's not to say that you can't win a case uh, where precedent looks like it's against you because you almost always are going to be able to bring a relevant set of precedents and say to the court, here's the relevant precedents that will win for your side. So it's, it's, it, this lobbying the judicial branch is more unpredictable. All right, well, that's our consideration of uh, lobbying, interest groups lobbying through the executive and the judicial branch. Uh, for week four, we're gonna, start, we're gonna wrap up by looking at the other ways in which interest groups try to promote their success at uh, getting policies that they are favorable to enacted.